Oh, your piano playing. I just found out that, uh, just to add to your prayer list, that Bob and Lorinda Gregg were here this morning, and then uh, her shoulder started really giving her problems. You know, she had surgery just here a couple weeks ago, so they had to go home. So add her to your prayer list this morning, and uh, we'll continue to pray for her. Well, today I, I want to. We're going to close out chapter twenty uh, of the book of Proverbs, and um, we're going to close it out with one verse that I think is uh, a great study on one of the key elements of our relationship with God. You know. Uh, preachers are famous for uh, preaching on certain things in the Bible that they uh, that they that they know will you know are, are good things to preach on, make people happy, and all that stuff, you know. And um, you know the subject that I'm going to preach on today is not really talked about much, and I understand why. It's not a very popular, uh, pleasant thing to talk about, but it should be. Um, you know, I, I want to talk to you about the chastisement of God in your life when it comes, and in my life when it comes. And it, sooner or later, it will come in our lives. And it's based on Proverbs chapter 20, verse 30. You can go there, even though we're going to bounce around a little bit before we finally settle in there. And, uh, you know, if you've been around uh, much, you know that Christians and Christianity today, they only want the positive side of things. Uh, they don't want any negative. Uh, the whole realm of the Laodicean church, the hallmark of it is teaching, not preaching. And everybody has shifted to the place where when you teach, you edify, and you uh, give great things, and you talk about great things, you know, and uh, everything is kind of a, uh, kind of a low, um, you know, threshold of uh, truth where you just, uh, you know, you want to keep everybody happy, make everybody happy. You don't want to preach on subjects that is going to cause you some problems in your church. You try to keep it as, as easy, you know, balanced in that as you can. And um, Christians today have come to the point where they've gotten so far out of the truth of the Bible and they've lost what it really means to have a real, working, honest, viable relationship with God that they want that. They live in this dream world that they call Christianity where everything is fine. There's nothing, there's no negative. Many, many churches never preach on sin. In fact, you'd think that the devil died uh, if you uh, went into some of those places. And of course he didn't. Christians of Christianity, they only want the positive side of Christianity. They can't deal with the negative things. And I say that uh, in light of, uh, I give you again, uh, we've talked about this many, many times. I think it's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. It's a great message to preach, a great devotion, and it's just a great principle. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, and we've talked about it before, all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, I want you to see something here. And we've talked about this before. I want you to see that, first of all, the Bible, the Word of God, is good for doctrine. Now, doctrine is good. Doctrine is teaching. Then the second thing that it's good, if you look in there, that is good, is instruction in righteousness. That's a good thing. When you have what the Bible teaches and you instruct somebody, that's a good thing. Ah, but the other two things in here are not very positive. The, one of the things he talks about here is that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is proper for doctrine, for reproof. That's negative. That's bad. And then correction. And the Christian life boils down to just 50-50. There's going to be times that you have the good things in life that you do with God, and there's going to be times where God has to come down, and there's going to be some negative things in your Christian life. And when you get doctrine, and here's the reason. When you get doctrine, doctrine is truth. 
And when you get the truth in your life, I'm going to tell you, this is true of all of us. When you find the truth of God in your life, I'm just going to tell you right now, there's some things about your life you're going to have to correct. I've never met anybody in my life that found the Word of God and said, Oh, I'm good. I don't need to fix anything. When you, got, when you are a human being and you find the truth of God, there's some things now, when you get doctrine, there's some things that you're going to have to correct. And that will lead sometimes, in some cases, to a rebuke. But at the end of the day, you know what it brings? It brings the instruction of righteousness. And that's the key. The key for you and me is to get to the point where we get God's instructions in our life about everything that He wants. But I want you to know, there's no instruction of righteousness without the first three. Doctrine, reproof, and correction. And you can kid yourself all you want that you think that there's nothing wrong with you. You can kid yourself all you want, but you think that uh, you're okay. But I'm telling you, when you find the Word of God, or I should say when the Word of God finds you. I, I've told you many, many times, the, only, the Bible's the only book in the world. When you start to read it, it starts to read you. And when you get into the Bible, it's going to show you some things, show you some things that you need to fix. And that's hard for God's people today. One of our favorite verses, it's been a favorite verse of mine for many, many. It's in Proverbs 27. We've not got there yet, but we will. Uh, 27 verse 7, it says this, The full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul even the bitter things are sweet. Some of God's people get so full of the Word of God, and they get so full of all the things that they have, the way, the way they want it, that it, they get to the point where they, they just lose sight of the Bible. And they, they like going to church, they're like this, but they don't want to, they loathe the Word of God. They don't want to take what the Bible says and, and let it affect their life. And yet the Bible says to the hungry soul, even the bitter things are sweet. You and I need to come to the place in our life that understand there's some bitter things in that Bible that's going to go against my grain. There's some things that I'm going to read, some things that I'm going to have to apply that my old nature really doesn't like. But you know what? When you love the book, when you get to the place where you love the Word of God more than anything else on this planet, you realize that God only gave it to you for your good. He gave it to us to help us, not to hurt us. When you recognize that God will never do anything in your world to hurt you, only to help you, then you get the understanding that the rebuke, the correction, the negative things in the Bible, even they become the sweet things of the Word of God. The better things of God becoming sweet to us. Why? Because we get understanding. We realize what God is doing. And the real, the real sign of a mature Christian, the real sign of a mature Christian, I mean, I know everybody wants to present themselves as a mature Christian, but I want to tell you something. The real side of a mature Christian is not how you get along when everything goes good in your life. The real side of a mature Christian is how you function when your world falls apart. How you function when you've got to deal with some things. How you function when, when you get the rebuke. You know, you have people come to churches, and one of the reasons why pastors in the day and age that we live in have switched from the preaching mode into the teaching mode is because people wouldn't put up with it. He'd get up there and he'd preach about something, people get mad. He'd get up there and lay out something in the Bible that was true, people would get mad. He'd have all kinds of issues he'd have to deal with, and because he himself doesn't understand what God has called him to do, it's easier. It's easier just to sidestep all those things, tell you how nice you are, tell you how wonderful you are, tell how beautiful you are, tell you how great you are, and then you all go out of here happy. But you don't change one thing in your life. Now, you're all beautiful this morning. Everything is beautiful. You're all beautiful this morning. 
You're all lovely. You're all the finest people on the planet. But I'm going to tell you something. There's some things that we need to change. And the quicker you understand that, the better you're off you are, see? And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the real mark of a mature Christian is when you're faced with that rebuke, when you're faced with that correction, when you're faced with something that you have got to do right with in your life, what is your attitude about that? And we think that uh, because we put out a positive attitude, we got a smiley face on all the time and we're happy and we talk about it, we use the, the catch word, praise the Lord and all that stuff, that everybody gets the idea that we're just a, a wonderful Christian and everything is just fine in our life. That's not, that's not the defining moment of your life. The defining moment of your life when everything falls apart or you have to face some things. Manly Beasley, he's long dead now, but he was, a, he was an incredible preacher. He's an incredible guy. And I've heard him preach many, 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 many times. And he always, had, he always had words of wisdom that just defied, uh, defined wisdom in my mind. It was incredible the things he would say. He said one time, he was preaching, and he asked a question. He said to the congregation, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? The lady down front raised her hand, and he picked, called on her. She says, well, you get lemon juice. And he says, that's exactly the answer I wanted. He says, you know, back down, and he was down south someplace. He said, back down in my hometown about three or four years ago, there was a guy that was going into, going into uh, grocery stores, and he was injecting poison into the lemons. People were buying the, you know, just a little needle. He put it in there. People were buying the lemons. They would go home and make lemonade or whatever they did with it, and they were dying. And he says, it was a thing that they, they finally caught the guy, but it was incredible. And he says, those people thought when they squeezed those lemons, they were going to get lemon juice. But in reality, what they got was really on the inside. And then he said, what do you get when you squeeze a Christian? You'd think you would get Christian juice. You'd think you would get the the perfect thing of a Christian. He said, you know what you get when you squeeze a Christian? You get what's really on the inside. And that's why it isn't about your, your smile this morning, though it's a lovely smile. It isn't about your, your demeanor this morning, though I'm glad you're not mean. Uh, I'm not sure that's what that means, but you know where I'm going with it. The real mark of a mature Christian is when you get squeezed up against what you've got to change in your life, what are you going to do? Some God's people get mad at God, they get angry to God, and they walk away from God. They leave church, they get mad at the preacher, they'll blame everything on everybody else except themselves. And you know what? I've had people all my life, Christians, who go to church, they judge everything in that church. They'll judge the song service, they'll judge the temperature, they'll judge this, they'll judge that. I don't know how many times going over years ago until I fixed the problem, people would come up to me and say, it's so hot in here. So I'd go turn it down a little bit. Somebody else would come up and say, it's so cold in here. So I, I figured it out. We put a thermostat back there that isn't hooked up to anything. And they come to me and they say, it's cold around. I said, it's Put it wherever you want to put it. We're here. This is like Burger King. You can have it your way. Just go back and put that temperature. I've never heard a complaint since. Because they're all nuts and it's all up here in their brain, you see. One woman back there and she put it up to 90 degrees. Oh, well, it's really warm in here. It hasn't changed a thing. Somebody else put it down to 35. You know, oh, man, I'm really good now. Hadn't changed a thing. You know that's the way Christian life is. Most Christians live in a dream world. You know you've got to have an absolute 
thermostat to tell you how hot or how cold you are? You know what is, works for you that way? It's the Word of God. The Word of God is your thermostat. It'll tell you this morning, well, are you hot or are you cold? And it ain't no guessing. It ain't no, well, I think I am. It's all in my brain. No, you either are or you aren't when you get in that book. See? That book will do some things for you. It'll help you with some things. You know, there's a verse back in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 5. We've not gotten there yet either, but we will. It says, evil men, evil men understand not judgment, that they that seek the Lord understand all things. Now, in the context, that's talking about the world. And I want to say that the key to your Christian life and my Christian life is really simply one little phrase, understanding all things. When you get understanding in the Bible, you can look at life, the world, people, circumstances, situations, the world around you, and you understand it. Understanding is how you perceive it from God's standpoint. And in the context, I get it, it's talking about the unsaved world. But do you know there's a lot of God's people that are just like the world, only saved uh, in, in, this, uh, in this world we're living in? I mean, uh, and you know, and we, for most of God's part, most of God's people just get angry and bitter with God when they don't understand God's judgment. When the negative things come in life, when the things of God's judgment hit them, when God comes down and has to deal with them, they get angry at God. They get bitter at God. They don't understand. They don't have a handle on what the chastisement of God really means in your life and my life. They think it's something negative. They think it's something bad, and in their world they determine chastisement of God as something that's terrible. I want to tell you something. There isn't anything that God does for you that winds up being terrible. But some of the things we do to God are... Oh, excuse me. I wasn't positive. I left my cardigan sweater at home this morning. We can't receive it, the chastisement of God, because we can't ever recognize God in our own lives. We're oblivious to it. We live our lives, and we just go on with what we want, oblivious to God, the Word of God, the principles of God, and we can't receive the judgment of God when it comes in our life simply because of the fact that we don't understand it. You know, in the Bible, there's seven distinct judgments laid out in the Word of God. It's part of that seven series of understanding the Bible, which we'll go through an institute. Totally unheard of today. You know, you'll find it in Psalms 105, verse 7, you have a judgment of Israel when they go through the tribulation period. That's one of them. You'll find in Matthew chapter 25, verse 32, that there's a judgment of the nations at the second coming of Christ. That's the second one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, the Bible says there's a coming of time when you and I as Christians are going to judge the fallen angels. That's the third one. Uh, the fourth one will be the judgment of unsaved dead, all the unsaved people found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And then the last three judgments deal with you and me. The, 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 the fifth judgment will be the judgment of you and me as a sinner at the cross of Calvary. You know, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you were, and I were judged as a guilty sinner, right there on the spot. The Bible says at that point, the wrath of God already abides on us before you were even born. When, when Christ died on the cross, He judged every man a guilty sinner. So when you look at it that way, the judgment of you and me as a sinner took place at Calvary's cross. And then the next judgment, or the sixth one, is when you get saved. You see, when you get saved, then God no longer looks at you as a sinner. This is hard for people today because you still sin. So people say, well, if I still sin, how come I'm not a sinner? It's not... It's not the terminology, it's how God now looks at you. 
Once you become God's child, you're no longer a sinner in His sight. You're now His son in His sight. And the only question is, are you an obedient child or a disobedient child? That's the only question. So in this life here, you see, you were judged as a sinner at the cross of Calvary. When you got saved and you begin your journey with God, now He's going to judge you as His son, not as a sinner. And then when you get in a future reference, the seventh one is the judgment of you and me as a servant at the judgment seat of Christ. There you'll be judged for your service. You won't be judged for your sins there. You'll be judged for your sins in this life now after you get saved. You'll be judged for your service. Dr. Ruckman years ago explained this in a little book that we got in the bookstore back there. It's one of the greatest little things I ever read. It's called Sinner, Son, and Servant. You were a sinner at Calvary's cross and God judged you as a sinner. Then you got saved and through your life now God deals with you as His Son. And when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, He's going to judge you as a servant. Sinner, son, and servant. It's the three-aspect balance of the Christian life. When, I, when Christ died on the cross, He judged me as a sinner. I woke up to that fact and got saved. All right? He no longer looks at me as a sinner, so therefore He doesn't look at my sin the same way. Now it's paid for. Now I'm His child. Now I'm His son. Now I belong to Him and His family. And it's this thing where uh, when I get to the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to judge me as a servant. Right now, as a son, I get out of line, he's going to whack me. I get out of line, he's going to give me a chance to get it right. He's going to give me a chance. We'll talk about it here in a little bit. He's going to give me a chance to make it right with him. But if I don't, if I refuse to do it, if I just get bullheaded, I want to do it my way, then he's going to come down and talk to you. And he's a good talker. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good people out there, good people, good people, who struggle with the idea that they can lose their salvation. And I, I feel bad for them. I really do. Um, most of them are very good people. But they go through life with the burden and the struggle and the monkey on their back that they think that they can lose their salvation. Now, we know you can't. The doctrine of salvation is very clear in the Bible to anybody that can read it. But here's how that happens. You cannot lose your salvation but there are same things you can lose as a Christian that will make you think you can lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. Make it very clear. You can't lose your salvation, but there are some things you can lose. I'll tell you what they are. The first thing you can lose as a Christian is your Bible. You quit reading your Bible. You don't get in the Bible on a regular basis. You're going to lose your Bible. It's not going to be important to you. And the next thing that's going to happen to you, you're going to lose your church. When you don't read the Bible, you're going to start finding fault with everything around you except yourself. You're going to judge everything around you when you go to church except judging yourself. You know why? Because you lost your Bible, and then you're going to lose your church. You know what happens after you lose your Bible and you lose your church? You're going to lose your joy. There's no more joy, joy, joy down in your heart. You know, you can always tell a child of God if they got the joy in their life or they don't. Sunday morning is always a telltale time. I mean, you find somebody that's way out there and they're not happy, you know, and they're struggling, they're not doing what's right. And you, you are, and you're bubbly, and they're not. They look like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice, man. I mean, they're in bad shape. And you go up and you talk about the thing of the Lord, you get that, ooh, right, right off of them, man. They're not where you're at. They don't have the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. Where? Oh, you don't have it either. You lost it. You're all lost. 
Where? Ah, uh, that's a little bit better. Once you lose the joy, you know what goes next, don't you? You lose your fellowship. You don't fellowship with God anymore. Once you lose your fellowship, then you lose your relationship with Him. Once you lose your relationship with Him, your prayer life goes out the window. Once you lose all of those things, your walk with Him every day goes out the window. You know, you know that you can lose a lot of things without losing your salvation? We talk about discipleship. We talk about discipleship coming from the word discipline. And uh, you, uh, you, learn, uh, you, you learn that the word means that you have to discipline yourself to something. And the disciple back in the Bible were people who disciplined themselves to the teaching of Christ. And you, if you're here this morning, you can, you're, you're, and you're in the Bible and you're doing what's right, you're his disciple. You have disciplined yourself, disciplined yourself to the teachings of Christ. Now, I, I say that so you know, there are no apostles today. There are no apostles. You find some charismatic woman that says, I'm an apostle. No, she's nuts. She's not an apostle. Uh, you find some guy get introduced, you know, this is apostle brother so-and-so. No, there are no apostles. There were certain characteristics given in the New Testament that you had to have to be an apostle. And nobody today can meet those requirements. I'm sorry. That's just a little Bible thing. I know, just a little Bible thing. But it'll help you out. You, there are no apostles today. But everybody here, if you're in the Bible, you're doing what's right, and you're saved, you're his disciple. Now, you can lose your Bible. You can lose your church. You can lose your joy. You can lose your fellowship. You can lose your relationship. You can lose your prayer life. You can lose your walk. You know you can lose your discipleship? You know you can still be saved and, and lose being Christ's disciple? Most people don't know that. Probably most pastors wouldn't believe that. Over there in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, after Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ and they're trying to all get back together, Jesus says, Tell my disciples and Peter. See that thing? Peter lost his discipleship. There's little things in the Bible like that that most people, they get in a big hurry, they never see. I mean, when you study the Bible, you ought to study it like you're looking for uh, uh, an AIDS virus in your own blood test. Get after it. And we come to the place. You like that, Kelly? Hey, was that a good joke this morning on Joe Holstein? I missed it. Oh, you missed it. I missed it. Oh, it was incredible. I would definitely use it. We, I get my sermons from Joe Holstein, and we always use the joke to go along with it. Oh, I got to tell it now. Remember where I'm at because I won't get back here, okay? One day up in heaven. The Lord said to every, all the men, I want two lines. I want two lines. I want one line with all the men who your wives run the family and ran your life. You get in this line. I want another line here with all the men who just, who just held the line and, and, and did what they needed to do and they ran their families. He looked over there and every man in heaven was in the line that their wife was telling them what to do. There was only one guy that was in the line. That ran his family. And the Lord said, man, I said, I, this is incredible. I can't believe it. all you people, your wife ran the family? And this only one guy down here, he said, sir, I got to know. Tell these other people, why are you in this line this morning? How did you get here? He looked up and said, Lord, my wife told me to get in this line. 
hours worth telling. You missed it this morning. I was writing so fast getting my sermon down off of here today, I just didn't get all that. You can lose your discipleship. He said, tell my disciples and Peter. Now, you lose your, you lose your Bible, you lose your church, you lose your fellowship. These are things you can lose with never losing your salvation. You lose your Bible, you lose your church, you lose your joy, you lose your fellowship, you lose your relationship, your prayer life, your walk, and you lose being a disciple. And then you know the last thing that you lose? You lose your assurance that you're saved. My assurance of my salvation is based on these eight things here. So you can lose a lot of things, but ever not ever losing your salvation. And when that happens in our Christian life, when we get to the point that we get out of fellowship with God and we do our own thing and we go our own way and we won't make it right with God, then Proverbs chapter 20 verse 30 will come into play if you don't fix it yourself. The chastisement of God in our life, my life, as his son. Remember, sinner, son, and servant. You were judged at the cross as a sinner. When you got saved, till you die or go home to be with the Lord, you're now dealt with as his son. And when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you're dealt with now in your service. Now today, let's read Proverbs chapter 20, verse 30. It's our text today, and it says this. It says, the blueness of a wound cleanses away evil. So do stripes in the inward part of the belly. Woody, would you stand up and ask God blessing on the service this morning, sir? Father God, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the book that you left behind for us to read. Open up our hearts and minds to receive the word, Lord. Be with Bob as you bring forth the message. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Now it says, the blueness of a wound. That's a deep, penetrating wound. A blue wound is a bad wound. It's a deep wound. It's a wound that bruises you. We use the term black and blue. Yet, here it's not talking about a physical wound that you and I would get. If you notice there, this wound here cleanses away sin. If you notice it, the stripes here, the whipping, are in the inward parts of the belly, not on your physical body. You need to see that. Now, what this verse is showing us and teaching us about when God comes down and takes us to the woodshed, the chastisement of God in our life. Now, just so we get it all in place here, doctrinally, in the context, doctrinally, this will be a reference to Israel going through the chastisement of God in the tribulation, one of the seven judgments. Inspirationally, as it applies to you and me, it's you and me in the hand of God coming into our life as a son to deal with our unconfessed sin and cleaning the evil out of our lives. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but the definitive chapter or the definitive passage in the Bible on God's chastisement for you and for me, it's found in Hebrews chapter 12. So let's look over there real quick. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll pick it up in verse 5. And we'll read it down through verse 11. Remember now, sinner, son, and servant. You want to remember that. When, you, when, you, when Christ died on the cross, he judged every man on this earth as a sinner. Once you got saved, he no longer judges you as a sinner. Now he judges you as his son. And this is what we're talking about. 
once you get past this life and you show up at the judgment seat of Christ, now he'll judge you as a servant. Sinner, son, and servant. All right, let's read it. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh to you as unto children. My son, there it is. See? My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. You see that thing? He received you, and when he received you, now you're his son. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with son. For what son is he that the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. That's illegitimate. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which have corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in the subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they, your earthly mom and dad, they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But, uh, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now as I said, this is the definitive chapter or verses in your Bible on the chastisement of God in your life. Doctrinally, it'll go to Israel. Inspirationally, they'll go to me and you, those parallels between the two. Now I want you to notice a few things here. First of all, look at verse 5. He says, which speaketh unto you as, as children, my son. There it is. Sinner, son, and servant. He's talking about you and me in this life now, after we're saved, but before we go to the judgment seat of Christ and God dealing with us as children. Then he says in verse 5 that we're not to despise, not, nor faint when we are rebuked. There should be no despising or no rebuking uh, when it comes into our lives. And the reason for that, it should be that you understand it. You realize that whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. You realize that God is doing what you're doing to you because he loves you. I tell parents all the time, there's a process in disciplining your children. And a child, if you want a child to grow up in a good balance properly, he's going to have to, they're going to have to be disciplined. It's just going to happen. It's going to have to happen. And when you discipline that child, there's a process by which you do it. You realize that you're not whipping them, disciplining them, whatever the form is that you're using. You're not doing it because you're upset with them. You're doing it because of the fact that this is God's family. You're God's children in this family. We have an obligation to train you up and raise you to honor and glorify God. And there are some things in your life we are not going to permit. You need to understand it. It isn't about I don't love you. It's the fact that I do love you. If I don't love you, I would never discipline you. I just let you run wild. That's, that's not love. That is the inability to fix a problem. When you love your children, you'll discipline them. It's just that simple. You'll make sure that they have the guidance that they need because they're going to need it. And that's what the Bible says here. Understanding whom God loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son. Everybody goes through it. And just like every Christian has to go through that process of God dealing with them through chastisement, so does every kid growing up in a family. And when you deny them that, you're going to have some problems. Then look at verse, look at verse 8. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. It's, it's pretty simple. God will deal with his children, his sons, 
but he won't deal with those that are not his. We know there's two families in the Bible. John 8, 44. You know you're not, you're of the father of the, fam- your father of the devil, the lust of your father you will do. Two families in the Bible. One of them is God's family, one of them is the devil's family. Every unshaved man is in the devil's family and woman. Every shaved man and woman is in God's family through a new birth that puts you from the old family into the new family. You know that. That's, that's an easy Bible 101. But the Bible says that God will not chastise or deal with someone that's not his child. We have, in my neighborhood, we have two or three families that live across the street. They got more kids than they know what to do with. It won't be long before they're one or two short because one of them's going to get run over by a car playing in the street. And uh, I'm going to feel sorry for the guy who runs them over, but it's just a matter of time. They don't look, they run out, they ride their bikes. I've seen them, I don't know how many times almost get them. I mean, I ain't kidding you. I back out, I, I, I worry about it all the time. They're just everywhere. They're running everywhere. I mean, they're absolutely running everywhere. And I'm telling you, it's a thing where uh, I watch those kids over there. Um, they'll, they're, they're nice kids. They'll wave at me. Uh, we take Izzy out, got little white paws, you know, four white paws. They'll say, wear socks, wear socks. Nice kids. I'll take my big old labs out there, you know, and they'll, uh, nobody, he don't care. He just, what time is it? We going to eat yet? Uh, he, and, you know, he doesn't care. And, uh, uh, but Daisy's a friend to everybody, you know, and she's wagging that little stub of a tail and she wants to get over with them, you know, and they're nice little kids, but they're totally undisciplined. I mean, I don't know if she's the grandmother, the mother or whatever, but there's one lady over here. She lives in a powered wheelchair. Now I know she can walk cause I've seen her for whatever reason. She likes this power wheelchair and in, in her driveway, she just uh, hours drives around in a circle. Just talking on the phone. I, one day I'm going to go over there and get a checkered flag, and I'm going to go across the finish line. I don't know what her deal is. She's not. The kids are playing everywhere, getting into everything. She's on the phone. This is a big square. I don't know where she gets her battery for that, but I want one for my phone because it lasts forever. And, and, I, and I watch those kids. And, I, and many times I wanted, to, I wanted to say something to the kids. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to, don't, I mean, they'd fight, they'd beating up each other. You know, one of them, they had a cat, and they had one hand and one cat, and they, you know, I, I wanted, you know, and I don't like cats. But I felt sorry for the cat. The cat's going, yeah, yeah, you know, and the kids are saying, I want it, no, I want it, I want it. I thought it was Solomon, and he was going to get a sword and cut it in half, give half to the kid. So many times I've wanted to go over and deal with it. But I never have. And I never will. You know why? Because they're not my kids. I'm not going to go over to somebody else's kids and discipline them. And you know what? The de- God won't come down and discipline the devil's kids. He won't. And You know, the greatest, I know you don't like it. This is not a popular message. I get it. And some of you are saying, oh, I wish to preach on the love of God or something positive. I know, but I've told you before, my blood type is being negative. I don't know what else to tell you. But I'm telling you right now. I know you don't like the hand of God when he comes down and takes us to the woodshed. None of us like it. But I want to tell you something, if I may, that's the truth. The greatest proof you have of your God's child is when he whips you. Enjoy it. Oh, Mel Sabaka used to preach on the chastisement of God and he'd always end with his mom. His mom was, a, was the disciplinarian in the family because dad was always working. And there was like four or five boys and they were just... Something else, let me tell you. And uh, they, were, they were something else. And she'd say that mom never let us get, get, uh, get, get away with anything. 
And he'd say, my mom never read the modern psychology books about if you whip your child, you warp their psychology. Warped her. She said, my mom never read that. When she warped us, she warped us all over. It was completely in everything. And he said, we know we were in trouble. Mom would go out in the backyard, and there was a peach tree back there, and she cut off a big, big old, and we knew we were going to get it. And she'd say, come here, son. And we'd come over there, because we never disobeyed mom. We'd go over there, and she'd put her hand on my shoulder, and she'd bend us over, and about that time, she'd get up there. You know what we learned to do? We got up, and we hugged her. And we put our arms around her, told her how much we loved her. And she's, she's, she's trying to whip us, you know, and she can't. And she said, you know what? I learned a great lesson in my Christian life. When I need a whipping, the closer you get to God and the more you get your arms around him and you tell him you love him, the harder it is for him to whip you. Well, that little piece of theology is about $9 million worth. But that's an old school guy, see, who understood it. That's understanding. And, and those kids aren't my kids. I, I, they're not. I mean, I would just as soon get up in the backyard at night and put a silencer on a rifle and take them out that way. But, it, you know, it ain't going to work. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Golly. My point is this. The greatest proof you have your God's child is when he comes down and whips you. And you're going to complain about that? You know why you do? Because you don't understand it. You think he's being mean to you. You think he's being nasty. I get up here and preach a hard sermon to you. You say, well, I don't know what's his problem. But you're my problem. <laughs> well, you know what? I just, I don't think he's got the love of God. In his heart. I, you know, I don't even have a heart. I don't, you know that? <laughs> I'm just telling you the truth, man. Don't get mad at me. You don't like what I preach. If it's in the Bible, you don't like it. Don't get upset with me. Here's what you do. Go out on a hilltop. On a full moon, take all your clothes off, put body paint all over it, and scream at God. Leave me out of it, would you please? Christianity in the 20th and 21st century, and I believe this with all of my heart. I believe that not many people that claim to be a Christian today are really a Christian. You know why? Because I see them live their lives like the world. I see them bridge Christianity with the world. I see them doing everything that the world does. And I never see the hand of God chastisement in their life. The greatest proof you have that you're a Christian is the fact that God will not allow you to get away with it. That's the greatest proof of His love for you. And the greatest proof for you young kids here, the greatest proof that your parents love you when they wail the fire out of you. Somebody says, how do you rate up kid? Whale blubber. What is that? Wail on them till they blubber. That's how you do it. <laughs> Verse 9 says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which correct us, and we have given them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Now that's a great verse. It's a powerful verse. That last part of that verse says, You know what? Uh, shall we not be, rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? You know why? Because your chastisement can go, your, your, your sin can go so far and your rejection of God's chastisement can go so deep that God just has to come down and take you out of the game. That was the problem over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30 about the Lord's Supper. He says, for this cause, coming to the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin in your life, for this cause, many are weak, many are sick, and some sleep. Like some of you on Sunday morning, <laughs> that's not what he's talking about. 
God sometimes lets us go so long and so far, and He just we, he will, we will not respond. We will not do what's right. We just keep going and going. And God says, I saved that person to give me honor and glory to win people to Christ. That person has rejected that. I put them in this game to do something for me. They're living for the devil. They're doing more damage and hurting more people than they're helping. You know what? Let me ask you a question. You played football. You played football, didn't you? Who else played football here? You play football. You play football. You play football. Who else played football? Any girls? You play football. You play football. Any girls play football? Let me ask you a question. You're in a football game. You're a tailback. I'm not sure what a tailback is, but you're a tailback. Quarterback snaps the ball, passes off to you. You just lightly run and get clobbered. You say, coach pulls in another play. He gets you the ball. And this time, you get hit, and whoops, you fumble and drop the ball. One more time. He gives you the ball, and you fumble the ball and drop it, and they get it and run to the score time. What's the coach going to do? He's going to take you out of the game. The coach puts you in the game to help you win the team to win. He expects you to give your all to be part of the team. When you don't pull up your load in the team, he takes you out of the game. God saves you and puts you in the game of life. He expects you to pull your load and do what you need to do. When you refuse to, you know what he'll do in some cases? Take you out of the game. You betcha he will. You say, how do you get positive about that? You're going to heaven, man. I mean, you may feel like a fool for a little bit, but then you'll see all the other fools over there and you'll have company. I mean, it's an incredible thing. Now, there's a great principle here found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 21 that really has nothing to do with our study this morning, but I'll just give it to you. You can put it in there, and it says, God's the Father of all spirits, you see. Ecclesiastes 3, 21. All spirits come from God. All spirits come from God. You want to remember that. Put that in your Bible back there with Ecclesiastes. Then he says in verse 10, For they, our earthly parents, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Now, that doesn't mean that they enjoyed whipping you though they probably did. It's simply, that's an old English phrase. It means that they, just in the course of things that they did. But he for our prophet. You see, that's one of the greatest, that's one of the greatest verses that give you understanding. The hand of God's chastisement in our life when we won't do what's right, it is to bring us back and to restore us to we, against our rebellion against his authority. And, and look at verse 11. And here's the end result of a blue wound that pierces down into the heart. Look at verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Amen. Amen. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Then the chastisement of God in your life and my life is an exercise. It's an exercise in discipline. It's an exercise in obedience. It's an exercise in bringing about the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto us that God wants us to have. Now, and I get it. It says, no chastisement will be joyous. Boy, do I understand that, and I'm sure you do too. Chastisement is never a fun time. But in reality, in reality, if you want the bottom line truth of it, there there really is no need for chastisement in our lives. God, that is the last resort. I mean, it simply is. You know, God gave you a Bible. God gave you the Holy Spirit of God. God gave you a church, and God gave you a preacher. Now, they're there for a number of reasons. 
to help you grow, to help you get saved, to help you this, to help you that. I get it. But let me tell you one of the greatest fundamental things about a preacher, the Bible, and church, and the Holy Spirit of God. You come here on Sunday morning, and you sit in these seats. You got something wrong inside you today. Something's not right with God. I'm, I'm not saying you're all looking at me like, how did you know? I'm not talking about anybody here. I'm in a general sense. You come in here with sin in your life. You come in here at, with, with problems in your life. And you don't want to deal with it. And so what happens? Some old guy gets up here and he opens up the Bible and he starts to put it to you. He starts to stick you. He starts to lay out the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God comes down and gets inside you and gets all over your head. It deals with you in every facet and every aspect of your life. Do you know why God designed it that way? God designed it that way so in this room, in this church, under this preaching, under the Word of God, that you would look deep down inside yourself and you would judge yourself and get right so God doesn't have to come down and do it for you. I'm your best friend. I am. It wasn't much of an amen. I tell you, I I think I got the three or four in the front. I'm your best friend. I won't lie to you up here. I'll always tell you the truth. And the Holy Spirit of God will take that truth and deal into your life, and He does it for a reason. You think God just up there watching somebody, watch me, you walk around down here, and He's saying, I'll get him today. <laughs> oh, look what He did. Uh, cancer! Oh, the light's red. Look over here. Go through it, a big semi. T-bones you. Think God just stands up there and waits for you to screw up so he can come down and whack you? Is that your concept? You have no understanding. God wants you here this morning, that book, me preaching, telling you the truth. He doesn't want me telling you how nice you are. If, if you walk out of here, I, want, I know the peace of God that passes all understanding, but I understand the difference between that and being comfortable. I want you to have the peace of God that passes all understanding, but I do not want you comfortable this morning. And people who don't want to go to, don't like that, they'll find a church where you can get comforted. I mean, you can go in there and they'll tell you everything you want to hear, just the way you want to hear it. They'll never rock the boat. They'll never ripple your feathers. I mean, they'll tell you, you can do whatever you want to do. You went in there and said, well, I just molested 28 kids and I don't know what I'm going to do about it. He'd say, it's okay. We all have our problems. No, no, let me tell you something. The truth is the truth. And God wants to reach down inside of each of us this morning through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God And he wants to point out what needs to be corrected. Doctrine, reproof, correction, then instruction in righteousness. And that's what the church is for. God doesn't want to come down and just hurt you, whack you, take you to the woodshed. That's the last thing he wants to do. But he'll do it because he loves you. I didn't like whipping my kids when they were little, but I did. I did. It was the hardest thing in the world when they were three or four years old, you know, and I had to take them in there and, Make them lay across the bed and take their pants down and them little buns there looking at you like, you know, and I got to whack them things. I, 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 did, I didn't enjoy it at all. I didn't. And I, I know, and I, but I, I mean, I didn't. I mean, they're dad, they're dad, daddy, I'm sorry. I know, I'm sorry too. I really am. You know, I understand the phrase, this is going to hurt you more than it does me. And you say, but I got to do it, sweetheart. I got to do it. Oh, daddy, oh, I understand. I know, but you know what? You're, I'm not, I can't let you grow up to be like so-and-so or like so-and-so. We go, daddy, I, I, I know you won't do it anymore. I, but honey, I got to do what I got to do. 
pull them little pants down, lay across the bed. Oh, boy. You especially. Uh-uh. <laughs> that wasn't joyous, was it? It wasn't joyous. But afterwards, Amen. afterwards, when you hold them in your arms and you explain to them why you have to do what you do, that you love them, you reinforce it. You don't just whip them and let them go on their way. You gotta, you gotta, it's a process. You follow the process here. How do you call yourself a child of God and understand the chastisement of God in your life when you won't carry it on to your own family after he clearly told you you need to? I didn't like it. They didn't like it. But look what I got today. It worked. It worked. And I know how you parents raise your kids. We talk about it all the time. And it works, doesn't it? You don't like it either, but it works. And it works when God in your life and my life. That's why God gave the church and the preacher in the Bible to give you an opportunity to fix it first. Back in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 3, in the Old Testament, you have what is called the day of visitation. That's the day that God comes down and deals with the nation of Israel who won't deal what's right. And it says, and what will you do in the day of visitation? And the destruction which shall come uh, from afar. To whom will ye flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Now that's to Israel. When God came down in 606 B.C. and 587 and took him into captivity north and south. But in a practical application, the day of visitation is when God comes and deals with you and me because we won't get it right. Where are you going to go? Nobody will be able to help you. You know, if you get a flat tire, somebody can help you. If you break your arm, somebody can help you. If somebody breaks into your house, somebody can help you. But you get a problem with God between you and him, ain't nobody can help you. Amen. Amen. I mean, somebody can point you to the principles and help you. But the bottom line is, it's, you've got to do business between him and you. Now, our verse says, the blueness of a wound cleanses away evil. So do stripes, the inward parts of the belly. Now, as I said earlier, a blue wound is a deep wound. It's a puncture wound. It's the worst kind of wound you could get. A blue wound is a deep wound that punctures. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any uh, two-edged sword. Piercing! See? Well, that thing will cut right down inside you. Piercing, even the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and the marrow and is the center of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See how it works from the Word of God through preaching comes conviction by God's design. And from conviction comes, when you reject it, comes chastisement. It's just that simple. It pierces your heart. You hardly go to any place where you hear the Word of God preached. If you've got something in your world that isn't right, God knocking on your door. Amen. You know, in combat, the worst, the worst wound you can get is a bayonet wound. Boy, back in World War I, some of those bayonets were that long. The blade was that long on them. Boy, you'd see those old World War I pictures where you got, what, 5,000 guys climbing out of those trenches going to attack the German lines, and they all got rifles with bayonets on them. Wow. I'll tell you, nothing's scary in this world to get a piece of cold steel in your belly. 
I mean, a shot to get one thing, but somebody coming up in, in, in the time frame, somebody coming up and, and knocking you down, and then you watching in slow motion as they stick you with that bayonet, that's got to be something. Back in World War II, the only bayonet charge that ever was run was a guy by the name of, of Lieutenant Colonel Cole on, on D-Day Plus 2. He was in the 101st Airborne. I think he was in the 501st. And they were outside of Caratan, and uh, the Germans were on down there. He just got fed up with it. You know what he did? He had about 500 guys, and he told them to fix bayonets, and he charged those Germans, and those Germans had all the firepower. They had everything uh, in, their, in their favor, but they got up and ran. You know why? The thought of getting stuck with a puncture wound deep in your stomach with a bayonet was more than they could deal with. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor for it. He got killed later on in Holland in, in 44. But, uh, you know, it's getting stuck with a piece of steel. You know, back in the book of Judges. Turn back to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 3. Here's a good story that illustrates what we're talking about today. The Bible's got a bunch of them. Back in Judges chapter 3, you got the story of a guy by the name of Ehud and a guy by the name of Eglon. Now, Eglon is a, is a, is a king of Moab, and uh, uh, he's a picture of the world. Ehud is the deliverer that God is sending to deliver Israel. Israel is in bondage now with Eglon, the king of Moab. They've been here for 18 years, 18 years of bondage. It's a picture, in a practical sense, of what you've been in bondage to in your life, maybe all of your life. Now, watch what happens. Oh, you're going to love this. This is how the Old Testament story in the Bible will come alive for you in the New Testament. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now here's the storyline. Here it is. You got one guy. Who represents the world? He's the king. Uh, he, he's the he's the king of the Moabites. A picture of the world. Then he's oppressing for eighteen years the children of Israel. It's just like you being oppressed with something in your life. What do you do? You cry out. You know what God always does? He sends you a deliverer, and a deliverer shows up. I want you to see this. But Ahud made him a dagger which had two edges, a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, the king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. Now, put our story together here. He's not only king of the Moabites, but he's a fat guy. That's a picture of being fat with the things of the world. See? All the things of the world. This guy is worldly in every sense of the way. And he's oppressing the children of Israel. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal, and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out for him. And Ehud came uh, unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the heft also went in after the blade, that's a cross blade, uh, so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Now here's the picture. This guy, now remember, the Bible says that Hebrews 4, that the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. You got the king of Moab, and you got Ehud. One's a picture of the world system, one's oppressing the people of God, one's a deliverer. 
He gets himself a dagger. You say, well, the Bible says in Hebrews 4, it's a two-edged sword. A dagger is not a sword. They didn't have the whole Bible back then. All they had was a couple of books. It's just a short sword. See how it works? So he takes that sword and puts it under his side. He goes in there, just like I do. I come in here, I come down these things today. He went in there and he says, had the sword over here, and he said, I, I, I got a message from God for you. Every Sunday morning we do the same thing. Some of you are being oppressed by the world today. You got things in your life. But you know what? I'm Ehud. I'm Ehud. I got a message from the Lord for you today. And you know what he did then? He stuck him. You know what I do after I get up here? I stick you. And I'll tell you something else. When he stuck him, <coughs> that dagger, it went in so much that he was so fat, it went in, and that cross part of that blade got in there, and he couldn't pull it out. It wasn't like, mm, he couldn't get it out. When he stabbed him, the blade stayed in. You know what that's a picture of? God's word don't return void. When I stick you on Sunday morning, you'll stay stuck the rest of your life. You'll never get out of conviction of the word of God. That thing will convict you, convict you, convict you, convict you. You may live 20 years from now. You may live 30 years from now. And you remember something that some Christian said to you when you didn't want to hear it that God just take and use to you. When you get stuck, the blade doesn't come out. He comes in there and he says, Son, I have a message from you from God. What is it? Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> He walks over there and he tries to pull that blade out. Guy's laying on his back, hemorrhaging blood everywhere, puts his foot on his belly, tries to pull it out, and he says, I'll leave it. God says, you betcha you leave it. That blade is staying in there. And when I stick you on Sunday morning or some hot preacher gives it to you and sticks you wherever you hear the word of God, you know what? It'll stay in you the rest of your life. But I'll tell you the second thing it did. Blue wound cleanses from evil. The dirt came out. When he got stuck with that blade, the dirt came out. And when you get stuck with the blue wound of God, chastisement in your life, I'll tell you what it'll do, what Proverbs 20, verse 30 says. It'll cleanse you of all evil, and the dirt will come out. Great picture. Great picture of that. Now, that's what the Word of God does for you. It pierces. It pierces you deep down in the belly. A blue wound that causes evil to be cleansed in our life. And your dirt comes out. Well, when God comes down and deals with you and you get dealt with, brother, it'll expose everything in your life. You'll get it out. And when you reject that, and when you won't deal with it yourself and do with it the right things that it do, then verse 30, so do stripes in the inward parts of the belly. Now you look at that word stripes. My Bible says, and you want to get this down now, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, <clears throat> talking about Christ. <clears throat> it says, but he was, now you want understanding about the hand of God chastising your life? Here comes another piece of it. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, 
was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You see that? Isn't that the most amazing thing you ever heard in your life? You see, all my bruising that I had to go through in my life, all my transgressions that I committed, all my iniquity of my life, all the chastisement I had to go through, all of the stripes that I had to take, all the bruising if you had to take, your transgression, your iniquity, your chastisement, your strife, they were all put on him at Calvary's cross. So if I did what was right with the word of God, I'd never have to experience it myself. Amen. All of those things were put on him when I was judged as a sinner. When I got saved, I'm now his son. It's not a question, are you, are you saved or are you lost? The question is, are you an obedient child of God or are you a disobedient child of God? An obedient child of God will never experience those things. You know why? They were put on Christ at the cross. That's why he gave me the Bible he gave me. That's why he gave me the Holy Spirit. That's why he gave me and you the church. He gave us the pastors that we have here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31 says, If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But we won't do it. Also, if I would just judge myself... I'd not have to be judged of him through the blueness of the womb and the stripes and the inward parts of my belly through chastisement. God judges me as his son, sinner, son, and servant. And as I've said many, many times today, it's not a question, are you a son or not? It's a question, are you an obedient son or a disobedient one? Now, I'll tell you what the value is of chastisement. And I know, we've all been out of fellowship, I've been out of fellowship, everybody. And we all know we all follow the same pattern of human nature. We get out of fellowship because, one, we won't hear what the Word of God says and we won't do anything with it. That only gets worse with time, not better. If we don't deal with that pretty quick, it gets worse. It gets worse. And, you know, a chastisement in, a, uh, in sin, uh, when a person gets into sin, a Christian gets into sin, you know what they stop doing? They stop thinking. They stop thinking. They don't think about the principles anymore. They don't think about church. They don't think about the Bible. They don't think about what they've lost. All they think about is what they want to do. Somebody says, a Christian out of fellowship is out of his mind. Well, he's not out of his mind. He's just out of God's mind. And that's bad enough. So when a good whipping from God, and I mean a good one, you know what it does? It makes you think. It makes you stop and think. You see this back in Luke chapter 15 with the story of the prodigal son. Bible says that <clears throat> there was two boys there, you know, and their, their, their father was good to them and gave him everything. And the one boy, he wanted to go do his own thing. So he went to his father and he said, I want all this mine right now. And he says, I, I'm going to head out of here. I'm going to enjoy all the pleasures of the, of the world and out I'm going to go. And the Bible says he took his inheritance and he wasted it. On riotous living. He wounds up on a pig farm. Taking care of some guy's pigs. The guy treats him terrible. Won't feed him. So he has to sustain himself. By eating the same stuff the pigs eat. And he's languishing down there. When he had all the blessings of the father over here. But he couldn't see it then. And you know what that chastisement did for him of being down in the pig pen? In verse 17 of chapter 15, after he's down there and he's living in the pig pen of life with the swallow and the mud and the filth, the Bible finally says, and when he came to himself. You'll never get right with God or you'll never put the things of God in your life till you first come to the place where you come to yourself. 
you say to yourself, what am I doing here? What in the world am I doing here? It makes you think. When a man and woman takes a good whipping from God, it makes them come back to himself. It makes him think. When we won't allow the Holy Spirit of God to convict us because we're stubborn, and the chastisement of God, the blue wound, the stripes will come to us and convict us and stick us. Wow. And we, we out there, we're thinking, oh, this is great. Oh, when we, with the idea before you do it, oh, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. Man, I'm free. I'm going to do it. But when you get in the pig pen, and that's where you live, you start to think. Five things I always thought when I got in the pig pen. And it's the same five things you think. You just had everybody put them in order for you. The first thing a person thinks when they're in that pig pen and they come to themselves and the hand of God been on them in chastisement, they say to themselves, my God, this hurts. Man, this hurts. Man, this, 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 this really hurts. I think of Jacob back in Genesis chapter 32. He wanted to scheme against God and do his only thing. Finally, God came down and touched the hollow of his thigh. There is nothing more painful than a bone out of joint. And it hurt. You know how God got his attention? They finally changed his name. He had to put the hurt on him. Boy, you get out there in that pig pen, you get out there living that thing and thinking it's great and all that stuff, and you wound up in that mess, and after a while you come to yourself First thing he's going to say is, man, this hurts. This hurts. I'll tell you the second thing we'll all think. Not only, oh my God, it hurts, but oh my God, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. What I lost for just a moment of time of pleasure to do my own thing in lieu of what I had with God is now gone. It wasn't worth it. Let me tell you something. 20 years of building a relationship and ministry and the Word of God can all go out the window in one night on the town. And the next morning you wake up and the reality sets in and you say, number two, my God, it wasn't worth it. Now when you get to that point, the third thing that we always say is, oh God, I won't do it again. I've learned my lesson. I can't hurt like this anymore, and I'm not going to do this to the one who gave me everything, my Heavenly Father. I just, I, I won't do it again. And I'll tell you, the number four, there have been many a GI in every war on this planet, for probably from the Revolutionary War right up to every war that we've ever had, that said this one. They get themselves in a bad situation, and they're a wayward son, out of fellowship with God and in the army someplace or wherever, some bad thing falls them and they're in a situation that's unbelievable and looks like they're all going to die and the cry goes up, oh God, if I get out of this, I'll never, uh, I'm done with the world. If I get out of this, Lord, if you just get me out of this, I'll never, I'll be done with it forever. Then the fifth thing, this is what God waits for. He waits for the natural process of you, me, coming to ourselves. 
and then we get to that point where we work through it, we realize it, we get it, understand it, and then we lift our head to God. We can't look anywhere but up. And you say, Lord, I'm broken, I'm busted, I'm done. Oh, God, please help me. And at that point, God now can do something with your life. The chastisement of God, the blue wound, the stripes, the inward parts of the belly will now begin to yield the peaceable fruit of God. Hebrews 12 and 11 says, Now no chastisement for the present seemeth joyous, but, 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 but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto, the, unto them that are exercised thereby. Peaceable fruit. The fruit that God wants us to all bear. The thing that he did on the cross when he judged me as a sinner, that he took everything that I was going to have to experience and put it on himself. And the only reason I have to experience it because I won't trust in the peaceable fruit that comes from the workable relationship with God, from the peace that passes all understanding. Old Martin Luther used to say, keep short accounts with God. Don't let your sin, don't let the sun go down on your sin. And as a Christian, the greatest friend you will ever have is a Christian or a pastor or anybody who will preach to you the truth of God's Word and tell you what it really is all about. Not one who will avoid the hard issues of the Christian life. Not one who will avoid the unpopular ones because he wants to keep everybody happy. The one who cares more about truth than he does anybody's feelings because they understand that the chastisement of God is an exercise in our life. It's an exercise of God coming down and doing what we need to do. And as I said, the mark of a real Christian, a mature one, will be a Christian that will understand the chastisement of God in their life and will faint not because of it. The chastisement of God will make them better. It will bring them to God, not away from God. To him and to her, the lover who loves the honeycomb and loves it all, not just the positive things, but the negative things too. Because they love the book, the bitter things in the Bible are sweet unto them because they have the insight to know that it will bring the peaceable fruit of God in their life and they know that they need it. Most kids growing up don't appreciate the discipline and the chastisement on the part of their parents. They don't. They're not mature enough yet. But as they grow and they get older and they have their own kids, they'll see and understand the value of it. And with kids, a biblical process is always the disciplined way to do it, to get them to understand. You're teaching them. You're giving them a teaching moment of understanding through their disobedience why they can't do it. I'm going to tell you something. A child without Bible discipline to authority in a family will certainly grow up with no discipline to the authority of the Word of God uh, when he gets out in life. The two are connected. And as you mature as a Christian and grow, and you work with others and you see the issues in their lives, it will help you to understand the hand of God's chastisement in your own life. It'll bring you to the point where you see in others and you'll understand better what God has done with you. It's easier many times when you deal with somebody else that you can see it and you see the full thing of it. The key is, can you bring that back home to yourself? You see, you working with people is not just about you helping them. It's about helping them and what they're going through will help you better understand who you are. And the same problems they have will be the same problems you have. 
And it's really kind of hypocritical to give them the principles or the problems to solve theirs, but you won't put them in your own world. So closing out a great chapter in Proverbs chapter 20. It's been a great chapter. The blueness of a wound cleanses away evil. So do stripes in the inward parts of the belly. The hand of God chastisement in our life, who all are partakers, sinner, son, and servant. Realizing that on Calvary's cross, we were judged as a sinner. Once you got saved, God never looks at you as a sinner again. Your sin now is not the sin of a sinner. Your sin now is the sin of a disobedient child because now you're his son. So he doesn't deal with your sin the same way. Once you go and he deals with it now through your confession, through preaching and teaching and your own Holy Spirit of God bringing you into conviction or his hand of chastisement coming down and dealing with you. Once you leave this life and you wind up at the judgment seat of Christ, it won't be about your sin. It won't be about what you did on earth as a son. It'll be about your service, your attitude of heart, of not what you did, why you did what you did. What was the motivating factor behind your life as a Christian? It won't be how many souls you won to Christ. Or why did you win any of them to Christ? It won't be how many times you went to church, but why did you go in the first place? It won't be how many times did you read through the Bible. It'll be why did you read it at all? Attitude, motive, motive behind everything that we do. So I'll leave you with that great last verse in chapter 20 about the chastisement of God in our life because every one of us are going to go through it. Maybe now you'll have a better understanding that not just like getting into your Bible on Thursday night Bible study or Sunday morning or in your discipleship or your prayer groups, you come out of there with some good stuff. Hopefully today you'll come out of this, this class, this time together in the Bible with some good stuff, better understanding why the hand of God will be in your life because He loves you and maybe better understand how He deals with you as his child. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. Thank you for the word of God, the message today, and all that we have that you've given us. Pray, Father, your blessings upon us, and we just love you so much. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for using and loving us so much that you're willing to come down and correct us. Help us, Father, to correct it ourselves that we don't have to uh, have the hand of God come down. But we thank you for, even when we do, that you do it because you love us. Help us to understand that. Help us that your whole goal for us is for us to yield peaceable fruit unto God. And sometimes that gets disrupted because of ourselves. And we need to be reminded. And when reminding won't do it, then God needs to come down and take us by the hand and remind us one-on-one. -on -one. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for these good people. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the Word of God that you provided for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed this morning. I'll see you Thursday night.